Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. Coming up in this episode. They're basically saying that the advantage of being biologically male is retained and therefore there's a significant performance advantage. Separation creates equality. That's the thing that people don't get. Infringe on the rights of another group to play safely and fairly within their own sex category, which is necessary. So once in a while, there is a sporting document that comes out that uh, has the potential to change sport around the world. And that document uh, landed on the 9th of October and was courtesy of World Rugby. And it was called the Transgender Guidelines Document. And uh, Ross and I have been chatting about doing this podcast uh, since that day. And Ross, of course, has been very involved in this whole process around this uh, Transgender Guidelines and we do stress that it is guidelines, not rules at the moment, but we'll get into that a bit later on. But we're also going to talk a little bit about the impact of these guidelines, not only on rugby, but across sports in general. And I think that is why the wider discussion is of value in our podcast today. This isn't just about rugby, it's about um, sports in general, how it impacts that and what the IOC, athletics, all the different sporting federations around the world potentially should do when it comes to this very controversial issue. What is Key to this, of course, is that uh, there are many social pressures, there are many ethical issues that has to be, have to be discussed here. And as you can imagine, when this document was released on the 9th of October, there was a firestorm on Twitter, which Ross was responding to every so often, um, but many people complaining. There were lots of people in support. Um, there were some very vocal people who were against the, the, the policy. Um, and it is something that I think many people in sport, um, some it's very polarizing, I guess, in many, many ways. But Ross, let's just start at the beginning. We're going to get into some of the meat of the of, of what happened with this document when it all started. But why did World Rugby feel the need to have a document guide, with guidelines around transgender athletes? Yeah, so the beginning is a lot before, a lot longer before October the 9th to begin with. You said that we've been discussing doing this pod since then, actually a year ago, I yeah. reckon, if not more. I probably mentioned to you that this was a topic worth exploring because it is one of sport's most complex problems. I think it's one of sport's most interesting problems in an academic sense, also an intellectual sense. Um, and it's a problem that sport has to confront because the, the fundamental issue is that sport wants to be an extension of society. It wants to reflect society. And if society changes in such a way that transgender women in particular, we'll see that debate, but we mustn't neglect transgender men also in this discussion. If, if gender dysphoria is becoming more prevalent, which it is, um, and if there are more potential cases of transgender athletes wanting to participate in sport, then sport is obliged to assess that situation. Just to find gender dysphoria, just for those so, of us who are wo not woke enough? 
<laughs> so gender dysphoria is where your biological sex and your gender are do not conform. So that is where a person is biologically male or female. They're born as such. And so we can go back to our DSD episode. We can talk about chromosomes, testes, testosterone, male secondary and primary characteristics or female. But the person identifies as female in that case or vice versa. And they can then reassign now. So there are medical interventions that are possible that allow a person to. And that's basically what we define as a transgender male or transgender man or woman. Okay. And that's in the guidelines. So there's a whole page of terms in it because the issue is so complex that even terminology gets confusing and difficult. Yeah. And so this issue, by the way, for listeners, we're going to focus on the sports side of it. But it actually, it's very difficult to interpret some of the reaction and the firestorm that you mentioned, independent of understanding how it plays out in other areas also. So if listeners are unaware, look into, for instance, the controversies around JK Rowling in the last few months. Look into controversy around prisons and shared spaces where women are saying that we need these safe spaces for women and they are now being taken away from us. Now sport is one such space and the debate around sports I think in many instances or in many ways is actually considerably simpler than it is for some of these other social issues. Um, and I don't mean to downplay that these other issues mm. exist but but we're going to focus on specifically on sport. I mean just for instance at the weekend um, there were a few different things all happened. A charity published a tweet talking about people who are born with a uterus. Mm. And then there's an outroar, an uproar, an outcry, because we say, well, there's a word for that, it's woman. And that's what got, that's what triggered the, the J.K. Rowling controversy, mm. was a tweet that said, well, people who menstruate, and she said, I'm sure there's a word for that. And so that's, that's kind of like societally why this is so heated. And I, I mean, you and I can't sit here as biological males and proclaim to understand and empathize with women's perceptions and reactions to those things. I wouldn't even want to pretend to do that. I think it would be presumptuous and wrong. For sure. But what I do feel is necessary is a discussion around the biology of sporting performance as relates to biological sex. And that's really why I think this is quite a lot simpler than some of those other issues. So that's where this goes to. Anyway, that's a fairly lengthy detour to answer your question. So the reason World Rugby had to consider it is because like every sport, we need a transgender position. And World Rugby's had a transgender position since the early 2000s, which basically was to apply the IOC's position. So the IOC had this document which recommended that if a person wanted to compete in women's sport, having been biologically male, they had to lower their testosterone below a cutoff point of 10 nanomol per liter for a period of 12 months, and they could then participate. That was the policy a year ago. I mean, a month ago, it was the policy. Um, however, there... Since that policy was created, and you can go back 15 years or more for this, uh, a number of studies have come out, mm. the most recent of which was in November last year. There's also been growing awareness of the prevalence of transgender cases in the sport. World Rugby gets calls and appeals and emails and letters from both sides of the issue, arguing for inclusion, in other words, against the, the, the policy, and, against the, uh, and for the policy. So we, we get both sides of it. And in particular, in 2019, there were reports of players getting injured. There were reports of referees who were concerned about safety elements. And then the other thing that was happening was that the IOC was reviewing their position. And because rugby had become an Olympic sport recently, Sevens got into the Olympics for the first time in 2016, uh, World Rugby was now part of that Olympic Committee discussion. 
And so I think the confluence of four or five different things led to a conversation where World Rugby said, actually, we need to review this. We need to sit down with player welfare in mind, with fairness in mind, and with inclusion in mind. And we need to have a proper discussion about this because nobody, and this we'll get into, nobody has yet done a comprehensive review in order to produce its policies. And so therefore, let's try and do that. So how do we go about doing that? And that was that was the first step. That was a conversation that was held over a year ago now. I mean, and breaking it down to its simplest form, the reason why rugby is probably more interested in this is because there's a, there's a safety issue. There is. There's a safety concern, big time. Yeah. And there are a couple of sports that would have the same concern. It's not unique to rugby, but it is, yeah. it is one that rugby has that, say, for instance, swimming or cycling or even weightlifting doesn't have. I think those sports also need to sit down and do a considered review of the evidence uh, in, in terms of theirs. No one, as I say, no one's done that. But for rugby, the issue is really that there is a welfare concern. Yeah. And we, we weren't being, like World Rugby wasn't being reactive to a news article in the BBC that described how a player was injuring her own teammates. This was a transgender woman and there was a quote from the coach saying she'd be a great teammate if she would just stop injuring her own teammates. That was the quote. Now, we're not reactive to that. That was one of many perceptions and articles yeah. and and feelings that was coming across. But the evidence was really the thing that was driving it. So rugby, I hope this isn't coming across as, cl as clumsily ordered for the listeners. Rugby already has a lot of policies in place that try and protect quote unquote vulnerable groups from stronger mm -hmm. groups. So for instance, we don't allow children to play mixed gender or mixed sex rugby beyond the age of 11 or 12. Yeah. Unless there's a special application and a special need where there are only two or three girls and they are allowed to then continue playing with boys because it's felt that there's no risk to them. Yeah. Uh, we already have policies in place that prevent you from playing in the front row of a scrum because it's known that the scrum has such a high risk of a catastrophic neck injury that there are laws and policies that say unless you are qualified and, and recognized as competent, you can't play there because there's a massive life-changing or life-ending liability risk in that instance yeah. to the player and it's not good for anyone. Uh, there are similar age-grade bandings and bio-banding is used in many countries where they try and separate out. So the sport is well aware that size, strength, speed and power differentials are injurious or create injury risks. Yeah. So now the question is based and when I say evidence, I mean evidence that's coming out of scientific papers where people are being studied and, and to, to fully understand this, we'll have to go into what the current policy said, which we'll get to, I guess. But there's this evidence coming out making people go, but hang on, does this fix, you know, does the current transgender policy address the safety concern? And World Rugby felt that the answer is it might not. And I stress might, because this was the, this was the discussion a year ago. So we said, all right, we need to actually evaluate this, but we're not going to do it in the way that many governments and sports organizations have done in the past. We want to do this thing properly. We want to hear both sides of the issue, which is something that hasn't been done. We want to hear evidence from various domains on this issue. We don't want to just hear a social argument or a physiological argument. We want to hear everything. And so let's do this properly from first principles mm. back to the drawing board and come up with a policy that we believe is evidence-based, not emotionally driven or societally driven. So let's talk about, I mean, this is probably the, the real, World Rugby has in many ways led the way in this and whether other federations do this down the line, we, we obviously don't know. But this is the first time that an international federation has come up with a list of guidelines 
around this topic. Right. Uh, no, it's the first time that an international federation has said the transgender woman cannot play in the uh, women's category. Right. That's the that's the departure point because every other policy up to this point has said you can play provided you meet certain criteria. And okay. we're saying that transgender right. women cannot currently play international rugby because there is a safety and a fairness consideration that we don't believe can be resolved with I, treatment. I suppose, I suppose my question is: Has any federation done done any sort of depth? And, and any sort of research to decide this policy, or as, as far as you know, federations are just making decisions based on, you know, societal pressures, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, do you think this is the first time an international federation has done this depth of of research into this policy? Powerlifting did it a couple of years back. So yeah. there's a presentation you can find on YouTube where a medical doctor explains the powerlifting federation's position, which is also exclusion of transgender women from women's competitions because okay. they're basically saying that the advantage of being biologically male is retained and therefore there's a significant performance advantage. They don't okay. have a, fa a safety right. issue there, obviously. But as far as far as the Olympic family goes, it's the first one. Um, and I think as far as what the other sports have done is, I, my read of it is that no other sport has evaluated the evidence. I mean, it's it's, and maybe I'm maybe I'm misreading it, but if I read the IOC's document, I see no references. No. If I read other national unions' transgender policies, I see no references. If mm. I read what governments are saying, and there have been a few in the last few weeks, I see no references. I see appeals to inclusion. Uh, I see appeals to lack of evidence. As they say, we cannot prove conclusively that there is a harm, so therefore we're going to allow this to proceed. Yeah. But I see no systematic assessment of the evidence from first principles. And that's what we wanted to do. Now, we didn't do that because we were hell-bent on excluding. Yeah. We did that because we wanted to understand whether we could balance these three fundamental issues. And they are fairness for all participants, safety for all participants, and inclusion. Now, people have to understand this. And I, I suspect many people who disagree with the Guideline have already switched off. <laughs> save, <laughs> save you an hour. Um, if you if you agree, you might be listening, nodding along, and that's this that's this it's this kind of issue, right? Where mm. you very few people are in the middle and willing to be flexible. Most people are. I agree, therefore I listen and support. Or I disagree, therefore you're wrong. Mm. Um, but we 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 went into the process absolutely committed to trying to find a balance between these imperatives. These so tell us about the process. I mean, how did this? When it first was thought about, mm. what was the process of actually getting to the to this document in the end? Yeah, so the the process was informed by various people's experience of how to manage a complex, emotive topic like this one. Uh, it was also informed by reading what other unions and federations and governments had done in the past, which I think had made significant mistakes in a few different elements, which we can get into. And so what we said is we want a fully transparent fully inclusive process that does not prevent any stakeholder from raising their opinion, objection, uh, argument, lobby, whatever you want to call it. Let's hear from every single possible expert and role player in this debate. Now, we can't hear from everyone, obviously. You can't canvas <laughs> the entire world's rugby playing population. Yeah. So what we did was we said, all right, there are. this is fundamentally a colliding rights issue. On the one hand, You've got people who have every right to identify as they please. Irrespective of biological sex, they may identify as women and they have every right to do that. 
and to follow whatever treatment procedures they, they wish to. On the other hand, you have biological females who have a right to play a sport in a space that is reserved for women, biological females rather, uh, because it is necessary. We know, and we can get into some of the numbers on this, that if you did not separate male and female in sport, females would virtually disappear from sport entirely. I mean, there are a handful where men and women can compete on equal playing fields, but mm. for the most part, the strength, muscle mass, power, size, speed, endurance advantages that males have makes them utterly dominant. And that's why the best female athletes are beaten by thousands. And I'm not exaggerating. In some instances, tens of thousands of boys and men. There yeah. are 15 and 16 year old boys around the world who are athletically superior to the best females in history. Now, yeah. that necessitates a separation on the basis of biological sex. Not so the separation gender. actually means that it's, it does allow for fairness, doesn't it? Separation creates equality. Yeah. That's the thing that people don't get. Like I, you get, I get criticized for saying, oh, how can you make this argument now you're lessening women? No, you lessen women's sport if you don't separate it. Yeah. Because the separation means that when we eventually make our way to the Olympic Games, hopefully next year, we will crown two Olympic champions in pretty much every single discipline. Yeah. There will be two cycling champions. There will be two mountain bike champions. There will be two 100-meter champions. So take that one, for example. Usain Bolt will be celebrated, well, was celebrated as the Olympic champion, as was Shelley Ann Fraser-Price, as the best athletes in their respective categories. They are therefore equal. Mm -hmm. But one of them is 12% faster than the other one. Now, if you didn't separate them into categories on the basis of, and I'm going to repeat this over and over, biological sex, not gender identity, mm. then you would have a situation where if there were 300 athletes, Shelley and Fraser would be 300. Yeah. No exaggeration. Yeah. Unless someone pulled a hamstring and walked across the line, she would be lost. And so the separation by biological sex creates an opportunity to celebrate equally two humans who possess all the attributes that we look for in a 100 meter champion. Mm. In other words, they both have the muscle tendon, the neuromuscular, the metabolic, the biochemistry, the psychological, the mental, whatever it is, the cardiovascular, you name the criteria, mm. they have it. Same thing as Julian Alaphilippe and Anna van Abrechen are the world cycling championships because they both possess that combination of elements that cycling should reward. Yeah. Lung volume, VO2 max, lactate threshold, FTP. You go back and listen to some of the episodes that we've done in the past in what makes a cyclist and what makes a champion. Alaphilippe and Van der are the same, mm. but one of them is 10 to 15% better than the other. Mm. Weightlifting, 30 to 40% difference between the best weightlifters in the world where one is male, one is female. But we celebrate them equally yeah. because of biological sex separation. Yeah. So if that solid line is suddenly rubbed out or blurred or dashed or broken, whatever, then there's a real threat to the integrity of the result for women, not for men, because yeah. they'll continue to win the open category. This is beyond just any safety issues. This is, so yeah. so this, is this, this is the fairness issue. Yeah. So it is fundamental that separation is respected as necessary and reasonable. Mm. No, nobody should disagree with that. Again, if you, if you disagree with that, Find another no. podcast because I'll save you an hour. So, so anyway, why am I on? So this is first principle. Yeah, so we're talking stuff about the, the team you put together right. for this, for this um, to come up with these guidelines. Right. So, yeah. so we're saying okay. So the the principle is there's a separation. 
can we find a way to quote unquote fix this in a way that allows inclusion without compromising fairness and safety? Now, for rugby, safety matters. For the IOC, it doesn't necessarily. So I just want to read for you. The, the, the current IOC policy says the following. Now, you listeners at home, you think about this in terms of fairness and safety, uh, fairness and inclusion, and you tell me which of these the IOC thinks is non-negotiable. IOC says, it is necessary to ensure insofar as possible that trans athletes are not excluded from the opportunity to participate in sporting competition. That's an argument for inclusion. Keywords, insofar as possible. So in other words, there's a contingency here. That contingency comes later in the document. They say, the overriding sporting objective is and remains the guarantee of fair competition. Now, you tell me, prioritize those two things, fairness and inclusion. What's number one and what's number two? Well, they seem to be saying that fairness is their number one priority. C- clearly. Yeah. The overriding sporting objective remains the guarantee, that's yeah. key as well, guarantee fair competition. Yeah. The opportunity to participate should be ensured or provided insofar as possible, right? So yeah. it's very clear to me that that's the way that they wanted it to do. And that was our approach also. So let's go there and see whether this fix, this IOC policy, which was the world rugby policy at the time, does it achieve that objective Mm. of ensuring that there is an overriding objective of fair competition for us and safety, player Mm. welfare, number one priority, and ensure inclusion at the same time. Yeah. So that's the objective of this meeting. The, the, the next question is, well, how are we going to get this out? How are what, we going to do that? What's critical about the IOC statement there is that they haven't done, they are almost contradicting themselves in a lot of their policies around this fairness issue. Well, when you, when you now start to open the books yeah. and you look at the evidence, you very quickly establish that you cannot, on the basis of current evidence, guarantee fair competition. It's, it's impossible. Yeah. You can argue, and we'll get to this, I, I think, you can argue that there is no evidence that competition is unfair, but that's not what they've said. They've said the overriding sporting objective remains the guarantee of fair competition. Yeah. In other words, we will not allow this unless it can be guaranteed to be fair. Yeah. That is an invitation to assess the research. Now let's study what is known about this issue. So they're duty bound to make sure that, that is a key, that meant principle is upheld well, in many ways. Let's not say they are, we as World mm-hmm. Rugby are. Yeah. And again, this is this is really important. We're duty bound to do that because our constituents, I say our World Rugby's constituents, are all players who wish to play women's rugby. Yeah. Not one subset of that cohort. We're not interested in listening to only one voice. That voice matters, no doubt. But we have to listen to everyone because our responsibility is all the players. And so therefore, we have to assess the evidence and try and ask how this affects everyone, not just one group of people. Mm. And one of the big mistakes that I feel was made, and this gets back to our process, is that it really only ever sought the opinions and the insights and the experiences from one group. And the other side feels neglected. Now, it's not my place to say if they're justified in feeling that or not, but they did feel that. They Mm. don't feel they were ever given a seat at the table. They don't feel they were ever listened to and that their opinions and their needs, their rights effectively were allowed. So it comes back, it's a colliding rights issue with the rights of one group of people to identify as they wish, which is absolutely no problem, starts to potentially, underline and bold that word, potentially infringe on the rights of another group to play safely and fairly within their own sex category, which is necessary. So now we've got to establish whether that potentially is legitimate or not. Is it true or not? 
that this is unfair and unsafe. Right. And that's an, that must be an evidence-based process. Yeah. So what we did was we said, there are four domains that impact on this colliding rights issue. They are medical, which is the clinical aspect, physiological, which is the sporting performance injury safety side, uh, legal, because there are human rights issues and there are liability issues, and then socio-ethical. So we said, right, we want people from each side of the debate within each of those four domains. So we want medical experts to argue for and against inclusion. We want physiological experts, sports science and biologists to argue for and against. We want legal experts to argue for and against. Tell us, what are the human rights arguments that argue in favor of inclusion and against? What are the liability arguments? What are the constitutional issues related to gender rights acts and oh, equality acts? It's complex. So, so we needed to hear all of that. And then of course the social issues. Let's get a women's advocacy group to explain why women want to defend their space. Mm. And let's get trans advocacy groups to explain why trans women should be allowed into those spaces. Because everyone's viewpoint matters. Yeah. But not everyone's viewpoint in a colliding rights issue can be met. It's an unsolvable problem if your if your goal is to make everyone equally happy. So you're gonna yeah. unfortunately have to make a hard call and we'll get to what that really difficult call was. But the whole premise of the meeting was we wanted to we wanted to to stress test the arguments. And we felt that a really good way to stress test the argument is let opposing physiologists present and then interrogate one another. So we wanted debate. We wanted someone to stand up and argue for inclusion, saying that there was no fairness and no safety issue. And then I wanted to hear other experts on the other side explain why they were wrong. And I wanted the same in reverse. I wanted the people who, who said, uh, as the biologist now I'm speaking, I wanted the people who said that there is a safety and a fairness consideration or, or, or unfairness and, and risk yeah. to, to state their case. And then I wanted the physiologist to tell me why they were wrong. I wanted the lawyers to do the same thing. I wanted one legal expert to argue against the other one in front of me so that I could assess who had a more robust, more uh, noteworthy, evidence-based, stronger position. So when you say you, obviously you mean the panel. Yeah, yeah, that wasn't so, involved, so sorry, yeah. I'm let me just take a step is... back and, and describe what that panel looked like. So there was a panel of people working for World Rugby that were part of this process. Yeah, so sorry, I'm using the royal you, the royal eye yeah. or whatever it is there. Like, yeah. so, so this was the principle. I should be saying we. So World Rugby then said, right, so we're going to get experts on opposite sides of the debate in four different domains to basically argue with one another. Yeah. <laughs> debate, disagree, where do they agree, where do they disagree? And that was going to be observed by a group of people who was ultimately going to make that decision. And that group of people was chaired by Dr. Araba Chinta, who is a former Canadian international rugby player. She now works in Canada as a psychiatrist, where many of her patients have gender dysphoria. And so she knows the field, she knows the sport, and she knows the rugby landscape. Amazing person, one of the, one of the most capable, honest, sincere, incredible people I've ever Sounds had. Sounds like privilege. a podcast guest to me. She is. She, <laughs> yeah. she would be fabulous on so many issues. Yeah. Just unbelievably impressive. And she chaired that group as an independent person. Then the group consisted of the head of World Rugby's legal department, who's a former international Irish player for the women, uh, head of World Rugby's medical division, uh, Anna Falvey. I was on it as a physiologist. It had on it an independent uh, board member from New Zealand who used to be the doctor for the All Blacks, Deb Robinson. It had on it a, a representative from the International Players Agency because they need to be involved in all matters that affect players. And it had on it the head of women's rugby for world rugby. So okay. it was, a, in my opinion, a high-powered, 
uh, appropriately qualified, independent and neutral group to assess all those four domains. So almost almost a jury of some sorts. Yeah, kind of a qualified, yeah. a super super qualified, super qualified jury, jury yeah. that was going to assess this discussion. And, right. and I think what was going to be most interesting was that we were going to hear a scientist explain the, the biological differences between male and female. What happens when you suppress testosterone? Does mm. it remove those biological differences? And then, I, then we were going to hear a lawyer make an assessment of what that meant to his position. Yeah. We were going to hear sure. the human rights argument presented, and then we were going to get an opportunity to hear a scientist interpret that. So the cross-pollination of domains mm. and also the, the colliding expertise within each domain and across domains for me was a, the best way to get out of this. How did you do that? When do. Were you sitting in a, in a room or was this all done virtually or was it emails back and forth? Uh, no, so we, we wanted them physically present. And I mean, luckily yeah. we did it before COVID hit the world because <laughs> this happened in February this year. It was, one, it was in fact the very last meeting I ever went to before the COVID lockdown hit the world. And what we did was we invited people from around the world. We had Swedish folk, we had the New Zealander, we had the Canadian chair. It was, uh, it was held in London, yeah. in Teddington. And it was a two day workshop where we put together a program. So each domain had a three or four hour slot and the experts were able to just go at it. And nothing was off limits. We wanted people to challenge. We wanted people to fight and argue in a civil way. I mean, and sometimes, of course, it got a little bit heated. I was going to say, were there some heated debates? There were, but I think everyone was actually quite civil. There were, yeah. there were moments when people felt offended by the arguments of the other side. In the, in the lead up to the meeting, of course, there were advocacy groups that didn't want the opposing advocacy group, advocacy group there. So on yeah. the one side, they're saying, we don't want them there, they're transphobic. Right. The other side was saying, we don't want them there, they're misogynists, and they don't want to listen to women's voices. So that's, that's understandable. I, mm. I'm quite comfortable that this is an emotive issue. But we, we, we got them all in the same room, and, and I think World Rugby can be very proud of that as, as, a, as a first. I don't know that that's ever happened. And then I, I believe, and I mean now, obviously, since the guideline came out, the, the process has been criticized as biased and loaded and mm. lacking objectivity and so on, which I think is grossly unfair. Uh, our intention genuinely was let's get all the evidence on the table and then assess it as, as yeah. a working group. And, and we were very open. Were you surprised by some of the submissions? In other words, I'm sure you've done a lot of research around the physiological and biological effect of this, but were you surprised by some of the arguments? Yeah. Is, yeah, it, is anything that stands out that you thought, actually, I didn't think of that? The first thing that stands out is the is the remember the process was designed to stress test the arguments. Yeah. So we wanted to hear two arguments A versus B one after the next. Mm. The quality of some of the arguments was profoundly different. Mm. Uh, we had we had statistical robustness and papers being cited and arguments being made from first principles on one side and the other side was very much anecdotal and emotive and just there's a lack of evidence, which we acknowledge, by the way. We'll get on to, to some of those So the things. principle was that you were looking at evidence-based Yeah, and, evidence. and <laughs> this is a, you know, this is another thing. It was one of the sort of catch lines within World Rugby when I started was evidence, not emotion. Mm. That was our approach to concussion, which is another emotive issue because you're dealing now with brain injury. And when it first became an issue for rugby, there was a lot of opinion and emotional argument around what should be done. And the man who was the chief medical officer at the time, also an absolute genius, was really clear. He said, we'll do this by evidence, not yeah. emotion. And it's the right way to go because, you see, the problem is the moment you start, and again, I'm not, I'm not dismissing the experiences of people on both sides of the debate. Mm. They matter, and that's why they were in the room the whole time. 
They were free to comment and criticize the science, the law, the medical issues, the other side's social, ethical issues. They were able to express anything they wished to for the benefit of that working group that was going to make the decision. But fundamentally, this has to be based on what can be proven, not mm -hmm. what is asserted. And that's why the evidence. And so, I, I look, I can't speak for the other people on the working group. And because I've been involved fairly closely, actually, with the Castor Semenya thing for 11 years now, I was pretty familiar with the research on this mm -hmm. matter. And so I, I knew what was being presented to me already. But it is striking how much evidence there was that had never ever been considered by governments, organizations, federations, sports. It's, it's, yeah. it's actually remarkable, you know? Well, I mean, let's dig into that. I mean, when we talk about transgender athletes, these are athletes that were potentially previously male, they've gone through a, a process and then they've come out the other side as females. What did the research tell you about these, these people that change? So the first thing is you've got to now identify what's your new question? Because there's a new question here and it's a very important mm. one because the, the principle is the sport wishes to be inclusive. Mm. Currently, it achieves or tries to achieve rather that inclusion by administering a policy that suppresses testosterone for 12 months to take away the advantages conferred by the testosterone. So now we go back to our initial first principle. Why are males 30% stronger, more 50% stronger, 15% faster, 35% more powerful than females? Well, yep. That is not entirely due to, because there are other factors unrelated to it, but is driven in large part by the effects of testosterone on development. So this is why, and, and this is, for example, England Rugby says this in a document on, on <laughs> policy, that boys and girls can play rugby together until they're 11. I've mentioned this already. Thereafter, they must be separated. That's because at that age, more or less, typically, testosterone starts to work its magic in boys. Yeah. And they become stronger and faster, lean muscle, bone mass, yeah. cardiovascular, heart, lungs, etc. So the testosterone seems to be the root cause, and sport thought that lowering the testosterone would therefore be the fix. Yes. So this invites a very obvious question. Yes. Does the <laughs> fix work? That's you're going, it. You're going to ask the question I was going to ask. It's yeah. really basic. Because once you've understood the first principle, separation being necessary and reasonable on the basis of testosterone, we're gonna fix this by lowering the testosterone. Yeah. It's really obvious what you do next. You look at the evidence and you ask, does the lowering of testosterone take away the biological differences that necessitated separation in the first place? Right. Done, that's it. So then you say, all right, well, it turns out that there are a dozen studies on this. Mm -hmm. They cover 800 trans women in total. So these are studies usually done for clinical reasons and in the interest of disclosure, not on athletically trained trans women mm -hmm. and not on people who will train while they're lowering testosterone. And I know you're gonna ask me, well, what if you introduce training? We'll get to that. But what these studies find without exception is that the difference made by lowering testosterone is far smaller than the original difference between male and female. So in other words, if you had a 45 to 50% higher lean mass as a biological male than female, so trans man compared to trans woman, mm -hmm. or, 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 or biological yeah. female rather, after a 12-month period of testosterone suppression, only between 5 and 10% of that is gone. So oh, you start okay. with 50, you take away one-fifth. Strength, the initial difference is 40 to 50%. 12 months of testosterone suppression removes between 0 and 10%. Bone mineral density, the initial difference is large, 
the testosterone suppression takes away none of it. So what you are left with is a conclusion that says that whatever biology drives male versus female performance advantage is hardly affected to the tune of one fifth mm -hmm. compared to the initial difference between male and female. So and that's in trans So those transgender athletes are still significantly stronger, have more muscle mass, even the, though they've gone through this process of... Yes, so who's yeah. your control point at this, at this time, right? So you gotta yeah. ask, who's, who are we comparing them to? So the comparison in the studies is made between transgender women at the end of um, testosterone suppression compared to themselves before, they've mm -hmm. lost five or 6%, as I've said, they started with a large advantage, they've lost five or 6%. And then what you do is you compare them to biological females, a control cohort of biological females, and they are 30 to 40% stronger and have more lean mass than that. So, so oh, they retain, okay. so the point is that because you have a large starting advantage of X and a removal of Y, but X is much larger than Y, there is a significant retained advantage, which we can call Z, which right. has implications. Now, you cannot assess 11 studies, 12 studies, sorry, one of them's in, in youth, so that's why in World Rugby we only cited 11, but there are 12. Of the 11, 800 cases where the typical advantage that is retained is so large, you cannot look at that as a sport and conclude that we can allow this to proceed with a guarantee of fair and safe competition. It's just impossible. Is there any argument against that? Did anybody come and say, well, yeah, we, we, don't, for sure. we don't believe that? Yes, so the, the, the instant argument, and it came from all quarters during the consultation process, because the, the next phase, by the way, of the, of the process was that once this working group got together and assessed all the evidence they'd heard from these four domains, as we produced what was a draft guideline, and we then sent that out to the unions for consultation and again to our expert witnesses, quote unquote, if we can go along with your analogy that we're the qualified jury and they're mm. going to be the, mm. the, the witnesses. And for, for sure, the, anyone who disagreed with that opinion said, but hang on, this research wasn't based in, on trans athletes. It was done on non-athletic people who weren't trained. Yeah. So we say, okay. We get that. We're not stupid, first of all. And it was honestly quite disheartening. Some of the some of the people who wrote in with that are, anyway, I don't want to get myself personally into trouble, but it's actually disheartening that people would just stop there. Because if your contention is going to be that training would change the finding, tell me how. What are you going to say? Is training going to make it bigger? Well, the female it? athletes who are not transgender potentially are slightly stronger than the average population. And of, you would assume. So that's the one element to it. And then the other so side of it. They close the gap. Correct. Good point. Mm. The other side of it is that the biological male who is going to be transgender as an athlete starts with higher baseline levels also, of mass. And is also training. So they're also training, right? Yeah. So, so now you've got actually quite a fluid situation where you've got mm. two moving parts. You've got the reference group of female athletes on one side and the group. Um, of male, biologically male athletes mm. who are about to transition, trans women on the other side. And, and that latter group, by the way, the, the trans women could be trained before transition and they're trained during transition. So you've got to ask what happens with training before and during. What, what makes me most disheartened is that all the people who've raised this haven't thought about these three scenarios mm -hmm. because you can test them because you're, you're effectively creating a hypothesis now and you can actually say, well, can we find any evidence that suggests what would happen? So the first point, one you raised, athletically trained females might increase their strength to the point that they narrow that gap, potentially eliminate that gap. Mm. There are studies 
that have compared untrained men to elite trained women. And they find that elite trained women are still 26% less strong than a typical untrained man in certain tasks, tasks that involve upper body strength. Yeah. So elite handball, elite judo athletes have lower strength than untrained men. And in fact, the, the, the strength levels of the women, I hope I get the number right, falls more or less at about the 58th percentile for men. So 40% of untrained males are stronger than elite females. Yeah. So even training will not eliminate that advantage. That's, that's how profound that biological sure. sex difference is. It's not, it's not a marginal uh, difference. I mean, yeah. last year at the World Athletics Championships, there was a mixed relay race, 4 by 400 relay, men and women, two men, two women. Yes, I saw that. And Poland started with their men and all the other teams start with their women. And the consequence was on the final leg, the Polish athlete has a big lead. It's a woman now running against the men. They came past her on the back straight in, in a way that made people gasp. Yeah. That's 12%. Yeah. Imagine how, it's, 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 it's unbelievable how big the difference is. Yeah. And even training doesn't bridge that in certain tasks. Now you overlay on that a trained biological male. So now you've got someone who's got higher muscle mass at baseline, higher strength variables, higher power. That person could, and we acknowledge this in the document, they could lose more strength in absolute terms than an untrained person because they've got more to start with. Yeah. I mean, if you're a bodybuilder and you starve yourself, you're going to lose 30 kilograms, whereas an untrained person might lose 10. Mm. Makes sense. Yeah. Can they go so low that they become weaker and less muscular than an untrained person? Impossible. Yeah. The baseline is set by non-trained individuals. Does that transgender athlete, I mean, you talk about that research over, over the first year. If you talk two, three years down the line, does that become less of an impact? So that's a, that's a really interesting point. I'm almost tempted to put that in the parking lot because it's a really good question. That the, some of the studies that we cite in the guideline in support of our position have monitored it for up to eight years. Mm. Most of the change happens within the first year. So for instance, the, the five to 10%, 8% of it, if I remember from one study, was within one year, and thereafter it was half a percent per year for the next three years. Oh, okay. It is possible that some variables continue to decline at the same rate and therefore disappear after time. Mm. And one of the, so one of the things that we would then be looking for is as more studies come up, the track transgender transition over a longer period is can we then lengthen the window of testosterone suppression and then allow inclusion? So that's certainly something that we're open to. Yeah. But the policy that was being evaluated was 12 months, and this is the evidence that I'm presenting. Okay. Yeah. So, okay, so that's a, somewhat of a detour. The, the, so now you're so, 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 so pre-trained, prior to transition, prior to testosterone suppression, you might get a larger absolute loss of muscle mass, strength, power, speed, but the baseline, the, the end point cannot possibly be lower than an untrained person. So therefore, whatever evidence we cite sets the smallest possible retained advantage. Yeah. You can play around with this on a piece of paper. You'll see there's no plausible way that a trained person can end up weaker than an untrained person. It's, mm. it's ridiculous to think that. So, so when you sit there and you tell us that our research is not on trained athletes, if you'd taken the next two steps, you'd realize that it actually probably doesn't matter that much in that in that specific scenario. Yeah. The next thing is what happens with training. So what happens if you train while you're taking testosterone? Well, it turns out that there are studies that have done that, not taking testosterone, suppressing testosterone. So for instance, when there's prostate cancer, androgen deprivation, lowering of testosterone is a yeah. common treatment. There is a systematic review based on dozens of studies that shows that if you train while you are reducing your testosterone, you don't lose any muscle mass. 
In fact, you can actually get stronger than you were at the start. In other words, you can get stronger independent of testosterone. Yeah. There are other studies where they've made men take these, what are called antagonists, that basically shut off the body's production of testosterone, and then they've trained them, and they found that without these drugs, they lose between 4 and 10%. With the drugs, they lose between 0 and 4%. So in actual fact, there's quite a lot of evidence that if you train during the period of testosterone suppression, the loss in these biological variables is even smaller than it is when you don't train. So now, all of a sudden, that criticism, they're not untrained athletes, is, look, it's legitimate. And there's a, yeah. whole, there's a whole section in the guideline that discusses this because we understood that it was a consideration. We knew this before it was ever raised by anyone else. We knew that this was going to be an issue. But we felt that there was enough supplementary evidence from parallel worlds and rationale, biological plausibility, to say that actually the training won't make a difference because mm. A, the differences are so large, and B, the, the training actually attenuates yeah. the loss of these variables. So you're left in the same position where the typical case, the typical male-female difference is barely removed at all with testosterone suppression and training might make it even smaller uh, smaller reductions in, the, in that reduction, which leaves you with larger attained advantage. So therefore, is we there, proceeded. Is there ever a case to, a case to look on case by case? In other words, <laughs> look at individuals to say, well, you know, we're, without using a Monty Python thing, we're all individuals. Um, you know, there are, there's obviously these studies are a general assessment of transgender groups. But within those groups, there are individuals that respond differently and have different levels of muscle mass and testosterone. Yeah. So, so this is where this is what comes out next, right? So you actually like it's like dominoes falling over because every single objection that's raised, I believe, is can be countered with a rational, mm. evidence-based answer to say actually we're still in a good position here to say you can't guarantee it. And by the way, just on that thing about oh none of the research is on trans athletes. Well, yeah, but now in the absence of that evidence, is your default position inclusion until proven otherwise? Or should it be separation of sexes until it can be proven that they can come in? You're, now, su you're suggesting that the separation is more important than the inclusion at the moment. I would say that, should be the that, default. From, that from first principles, the existence of a woman's category that is protected against the effects of testosterone that occurs in biological males and the androgenization that confers on biological males these performance advantages should be protected unless you can find a way into it that guarantees fairness and safety. So does the IOC phrasing in that document. Remember they said, yeah. guarantee of fairness or, or fair competition. We're adding safety to that. But if, if, you, if you have a category, you cannot blur and, and break the line, put people in it, and then seek to find out why they shouldn't have been in it. In my opinion, it's so foolish. And the alternative should be, this is the way I believe it should be done, is to say, we're going to respect that category. And if you can show me that there's no basis at all to exclude people, then we'll include. Yeah. And that's, that's a burden of proof issue. And I, five, 10 years ago, I probably would have argued it the other way. I would have said, let's include and then prove otherwise. But I just, you can't do that. And all the evidence that we have from 11 different studies and 800 odd trans athletes strongly suggests that whatever biology creates the performance advantages is not taken away by testosterone suppression. And so therefore, even if it's not on elite athletes, there is no rational basis with which to include and then wait for something to happen in order to say, oh, we were wrong. It, it just, it's, 
aside from the fact that it actually just diminishes women's yeah. the women's category you you can't do it so the people who argue that and then say we're going to allow inclusion because yeah. we can't disprove it i mean get off your head you're upside down seriously hey i'm ryan reynolds at mint mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Let's just clarify the difference between transgender versus, and it's, it's a slight digression here, but DSD athletes, you talk about difference of sex development athletes with someone like Caster Semenya. Um, why doesn't this apply to those athletes? Yeah, although, you know, you asked a really key question about case by case. So can we come back to case by Let's case? Let's go to case by case first. You, you want to do case by case first? Yes. Okay. So the argument now becomes... We digress a lot in this podcast. Yeah, we, we, <laughs> we, we're like a vortex. You have to... Keep track of where we are. Like National Lampoon going around the circle. There's Big Ben again. We'll come back to it. We're going to case by case. So can you do case? So now the argument is, all right, well, your concern is safety and fairness because some of these athletes who come across are going to be larger, stronger, faster, more powerful, more muscular, and therefore they create an inequality in, in these attributes that is going to potentially pose harm or unfairness to biologically female athletes is that my yeah so therefore what can we can we potentially set a cutoff draw a line in the sand that says that that risk and that unfairness only applies beyond this point beneath this point it's actually fair and safe so we're going to let you go and we had a few like this saying well if i'm a trans woman and i weigh 65 kilograms then i'm no threat to anyone therefore i should be allowed to compete yeah i get that but there are a number of problems with that the first one is conceptual would you allow an adult to play children's sport because he's not that good? <laughs> Would you allow a 106-kilogram boxer to fight against a 72-kilogram boxer because he's actually just not that strong for his size? Would you allow a cerebral palsy athlete who's only mildly affected to run against athletes who are significantly affected by cerebral palsy because on the athletic spectrum, he's just not that good? Yeah. So you can't... Just as a principle, how do you start making case-by-case exceptions on the basis of final ability when the category exists? It's it's just, it defeats the whole purpose of sport. Then you start having weight categories and muscle mass categories with the sport of rugby. Now, that's where it gets even more complex Mm. because even even if you sidestep this philosophical or principle position, you would now have to still operationalize or implement this. Now, how do you do that? How do you draw that line? Is it on the basis of mass? Do you say anyone who weighs less than 74 kilograms, which would be, I don't know, 160 pounds for our American listeners, can compete in the one category but not the other? Well, no, because they'd all be men anyway. What you'd get is a bunch of males at 72 to 74 kilograms who dominate women because even when corrected for mass, men are 30% stronger than women. So when you look at the weightlifting world records, at the same weight category, the males lift 30 to 35% more than the females. It's not just a weight issue. So it's not just mass. So, okay, so now you need A and B, mass plus what? Strength, power, speed. (laughs) So now you're asking sports to draw a bright line, not just one bright line, but five or six, and work out some weird complex algorithm 
that's going to allow an athlete to qualify or not on the basis of the fact that they're women enough. Yeah. And, you, and you want to tell me that there's an ethical problem with exclusion. Yeah. You, want, you, you reckon sport should be tasked with judging who's enough of a woman to play women's sport. It's, it's crazy. So, the so whole, in essence, you have to draw a line, a line in the sand at some point. You have to draw a line in the sand and you have to mm. say that we can't exempt people and we can't allow people to cross that line just because they aren't all that good. Because then we would mm. allow heavy box. We, we'd have no weight categories. Yeah. We'd, 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 we'd standardize boxing on the basis of punch mm. power. And then how do you test punch power, by the way? Do you make them come into a lab and punch as hard as they can? <laughs> because I wouldn't, I would yeah, cheat. No, I agree. That's, but by the way, a lot of the research that's being done on trans athletes, that's its fundamental problem, is that you actually want them to not be all that good. Mm. And how do, you, how do you get a valid, robust measure when the incentive exists to underperform in the yeah. test? Yeah. Imagine sticking me on a VO2 max test on a bike and saying that if my VO2 max is under 60, I can ride in one division. And if it's over 60, I have to ride against the elite pros. I'll tell you one I'm falling that does, off the bike that, at 48. I'll tell you who does do that very well is Zwift. Zwift have categories <laughs> yeah. where you race on Zwift depending on your watts per kilo. And do you believe them? No. <laughs> well, there's a lot of people that come past me pushing a lot more than that on my D category. But yes, I, I get the point. So, it's, so not, like, it's not a realistic competitive. The easy, and the easiest exactly. way to cheat on Zwift is to make your mass 10% yeah. lower. Yes, exactly. I wear 82. Oh, well, fine. I'll just change the 8 to a 7. Off yeah. I go. I'm flying up yeah. the climbs. <laughs> so, so, so that's the problem with implementing this. Then the other problem is once you've tested it, mm. you can never get stronger. Yeah. So now I'm going to test you, and my bright line, let's say, is at a unit of, a, of 100. And that, that bright line is some weird unicorn algorithm of strength and mass and lean mass and power and speed. And I'm going to say, right, you're a 100 out of 100, or you're a 99. You fall just below the bright line. You can play women's rugby. Yeah. But don't let me catch you training. Yeah. Because if you train and get stronger, I'm moving you into men's rugby. It's it's outrageous that people think it's so stupid. Actually, like, it just it makes me. You see it's, my it's you see the length anyway, of my hair. It I does seem it like a fair defence though when you say things like a 65 kilogram athlete. How can she be a threat to a you know a female athlete? That's if not. You, but I but I I, I take your point and you can you understand are, the passion around that. If you apply it to that one athlete, you can yeah. absolutely see the point, and that's where yeah. I am sympathetic. But when you apply it to a policy. It just fails on every yeah. single front. N never mind the fact that now you've got international club, club level two, yeah. club level three. So the criteria to qualify no, to play clumsy. international rugby might be, it would have to be different because yeah. you'd, be, you'd be overpowered at club level and underpowered at international. So you need two bright lines, one for, it mm. just, how are you gonna implement this? It just does not make any sense to me. Yeah. Unless you're going to say such extreme cases, we're going to allow across. But then you come back to your principle. And let me, let me finish on that principle argue in this way. When you watch elite athletes winning Olympic medals or world titles, you are seeing the top 1% in the world fight it out within male yeah. and within female. If you went with a case by case, what would happen is you would take a male who's at the 60th percentile. So he's slightly better than average for speed or power or strength or lean mass, whatever it is. And you would have allowed him into the female or the, the, less, the lesser category. So let's say you, in fact, it wouldn't be two categories. You'd have to create six of them, tier A, B, C, D, E, F, and G. Yeah. So now your tier A gold medal is won by Usain Bolt because that's the fast guys. Tier B is won by someone who's going to run 10.2 seconds yeah. because he's less strong, he's less powerful, he's less fast. 10.2, he's going to be a male. They all are because no female in history has come within half a second of that without doping. <laughs> Tier C, 10.4. Tier D, 10.6. Tier E, 
that's where you're going to get your first biologically female athlete. Yeah. So you're going to have four tiers for men, males, and then your first biologically female athlete is going to be in tier E, where she is going to be competing with mediocre males who are at the 60th percentile for speed or whatever it is for males, but they can now win an Olympic gold medal because they are still faster than the, you know, you know what I mean? It just doesn't make yeah. sense. So who would want, who would want to watch Shelly Ann Fraser-Price getting pipped on the line by Doug Ledfoot of Cape Town Running Club? <laughs> Yeah. That's what that event would look like. <laughs> now, not to mention the fact that the Olympic... I, I like the name you came up with. Yeah, I did, I did tweet this the other day, so it wasn't entirely okay. original. Yeah, I like it. Um, it was original at the time I tweeted it. Doug Ledfoot. It. Doug Ledfoot. He's going to become a character. Doug Ledfoot is the Olympic 100-meter champion in Tier E, yeah. where he edged the fastest woman in history yeah. by one one-hundredth of a second. Congratulations, and here's your silver medal, Shelley. I'm trying Fred to remember who it was that played against Billie Jean King back in the 1970s uh, that... Was ranked, I think, hundredth in the world. Bobby Riggs. Men's, that's right. I think Bobby he was Riggs. ranked a hundredth, wasn't he? Uh, and I think he beat her. Uh, yeah, I forget exactly. I'll stand a correction here, but we'll have to we'll have to follow that up. But I think he did beat her in the yeah, end. That was called Battle of the Sexes. Battle of the Sexes. She, yeah. I think she beat him actually, Mike. Did um, she? Okay. And that's often, that's often put of, put forth as a. Um, I mean, there are some exceptions. The best exception, I always think, is Anne Trayson, who won the Western States 100-miler back in the early 90s um, overall. Mm. And it's certainly in a long endurance events, there is some evidence to suggest that women are very strong over those super long distance events because they have this ability to endure yeah. more. So there are and, exceptions, obviously. And, and because the longer the event goes, the less the muscle power, the muscle strength, the muscle mass starts to factor yeah. into being an advantage. And in fact, at some point, high bone density and high muscle mass and mm -hmm. high overall mass starts to actually count against you. And so that's actually a really important point is that there are some sports where the contribution of various physiologies to performance is different. Yeah. And so it might well be that the endurance sports and the, in sports that, the sports that rely on power to weight ratios and, and muscle mass, fat mass balance and so on, are less affected by biological sex than not. And we know that's true yes. because we know that running is 10 to 15%, like swimming and cycling. We know that weightlifting is 30%. Punching power, by the way, is 160% difference sure. between male and female. Oh. So. So, so it's it's quite plausible that different sports will arrive at different policies yeah. when they assess the evidence that, that yeah. World Rugby has. But because strength and power and speed and muscle mass and overall mass are so significant in rugby to performance and mm. injury risk, they have to be weighted more by rugby. But you make an, you make an irrelevant just, point. Just, just, a quick, just a quick aside. I know we were going to get onto this. Um, very quick answer to this. The, the DSD athletes, Casta Semenya, yeah. why are they not affected by this? So we were very mindful that this is not a trans slash DSD policy because right. there are some fundamental differences between DSDs and trans. Very briefly. Differences sex development is DSD. Yeah. yeah, so I'd encourage listeners to look. We've done three podcasts, the most recent of which was about a month ago. It'll be in September, I think, sometime. Some Maybe effect, yeah. August if I've lost track of time. DSDs are conditions where a person is biologically male they have XY chromosomes, they produce testes, which produce testosterone. But for one of a few different reasons, that testosterone is less effective in development than is typical. And so it does not drive the development of typical sex, primary sex organs. And as a consequence, those individuals are often identified at birth as girls. And then when they reach puberty and adolescence, they sometimes start to see these changes in their body that reveals that they have high levels of testosterone that is functional. They yeah. get deepening of the voice, muscle, skeleton changes, and so on. The reason that we didn't treat them with the same policy is because the DSDs are complex. 
Some of them affect performance likely different to others. And so you probably need a separate policy that recognizes that nuance. And also because medically and ethically, they're slightly different in the sense that a DSD athlete like Casta Semenya has not made a choice to identify as a woman. It was She was assigned or identified as, not assigned, I hate the use of that word. She was identified as a girl at birth. Mm. And then sport is inserting itself as a way to say, actually, you were wrong. You should then take. And so they're imposing on a person who doesn't wish to medical interventions that she might reject. And there are medical ethical issues. So we felt that the trans issue was so complex that we didn't want to overlay the DSD issue. But in, as a matter of principle, they actually overlap. Uh, because if you have an individual with functional testosterone that can be used, then the same performance advantages exist yeah, as exist for biological males. And in fact, some of the evidence we looked at, we didn't use it because we, we, we didn't want to conflate the two conditions, DSD and trans. There is evidence in these DSD athletes that when you lower their testosterone, they slow down mm. by between 5 and 7% which is half the initial performance advantage that they are thought to have as per World Athletics at CAS. Right. And so that in, that in fact supports the argument that lowering of testosterone does not remove the biological advantages that it initially created mm. and therefore supports the world rugby position. But we, we chose not to cite it because we didn't want to conflate the issue. So we need to next address the DSD issue yeah. Um, it's an obvious question, isn't it? It is, and yeah. we it, it was a significant part of our discussions. Do we have a section within trans for DSD? But I think, and I, and I, because of the stuff with Semenya now, I've I know a lot of athletes and groups that work with DSDs, and they they really don't like the conflation. Yeah, and so we didn't want to add to that by mm. by combining them into one document. And because there's enough nuance that I actually think there needs to be a separate DSD policy. But I'll say this, it, it probably will share, well, it not probably, it will share many of the same principles. And on the implementation and delivery side, it might be nuanced in a different way because of those differences. Yeah. Yeah. So now what I want you to do is take your world rugby hat off for a moment and let's look at this issue across sport in general. Obviously, as you mentioned already, there are some sports where this is not relevant. We talk about sports like equestrian and uh, I suppose to some extent, you, you know, even athletics um, in, like in long endurance events, I love the the um, example of Gerda Stein at the Comrades Marathon here in South Africa, finishing amongst the top twenty men. Uh, Frith van der Merwe did that back in the early in the late nineties as well, late eighties as well. So there are lots of ways where women are very competitive with men at the very highest level. There are places in sport where the the effects of men's physiology is not not an issue. Mm-hmm. But do you think what world rugby has done now is something that down the line, all federations, the International Olympic Committee, all those things are going to have to face at some point. Yes, for sure, they have to face it. And I am I'm proud enough and satisfied enough also with the way World Rugby assessed the evidence and the quality of that evidence, the validity of that evidence, notwithstanding its limitations, to say that if anyone were to assess this evidence, I don't know how you can reach a different position to what World Rugby's done. I really don't. I, you, you cannot, if you, if you start from first principles, which we did, where we say that male and female separation is necessary and reasonable for these reasons, biological variation due to testosterone, the key question, does testosterone take away that variation? No, it doesn't, therefore. I mean, that, it's yeah. so clean to me that I don't know how you escape it, unless, right, and this is the key thing, unless you, you change the prioritization of safety, fairness, and inclusion, 
And so if someone were to come along and say, we are going to allow the inclusion of trans women athletes because we wish to be inclusive, it's our number one priority. We understand that this may create unfairness and safety risks, but we're proceeding because that's just the way we yeah. value those three things. That at least to me is intellectually honest. Yeah. So but fine, in terms of the principle that. of sport, also flawed. Well, the principle of sport that, that I'm arguing from, again, there are some people who, are, who would not agree with that principle. They would argue that sport is meant to be inclusive. And by the way, when that working group sat together um, to discuss the evidence, which at that point was overwhelmingly pointing towards <laughs> retention of advantage and therefore concerns, mm. I don't know how you, again, like I get all these emails, oh, it's not on trans athletes. Yes, I know that. But I don't know what you make of that research. Do you just pretend that it doesn't exist? Yeah. Well, that seems to actually be what a lot of governments and, and, and people are, again, people I've worked with and respected for their intellectual opinion. They seem to just pretend that it's because it's not on athletes. We're not even going to worry about it. Let's thing is because of stick social, it in the, social pressure. Stick it in the too hard to do cupboard because mm. of social pressure. And we will continue as though it didn't exist. Yeah. So, okay, so there's a hint that the muscle mass doesn't go away. There's a hint that the strength doesn't change. There's a hint that the bones don't change. In fact, the skeleton will never change. Yeah. A person, a person who's in the top 10% of height for men is gonna be in the top 0.01% of height for women, mm. irrespective of what they do to testosterone. And in some sports, that's a significant advantage that will never be removed. Yeah. So, so they, will, they will say, you know, we value, and I totally get this, there's a civil rights argument, a human rights argument that we heard in our, in our working group meeting to say that the inclusion should trump safety and fairness. I can't see <laughs> how you take that position when you, your constituents, your, the people who you are responsible for are also include women's players and you might be exposing them to risk and unfairness as a consequence of that. So if, if World Rugby's responsibilities are to all its players in women's rugby, I just, I just can't see how you do that. Yeah. And that, that goes for, 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 I don't know, unions, for other sports as well. I mean, if I'm, if I'm boxing and mixed martial arts, and, and we have, by the way, spoken to a few other sports and even the IOC about it, and I think, I think people understand like, where we've, how we've arrived at this position. I just, I just can't see how you assess the same evidence. Do you think it's something the IOC, having seen what World Rugby's done, are going, well, oh, we, we need to... I don't need to do this. I don't know. I, I genuinely don't know. I know that I know that they have been consulting and they have since 2003 on this. There is a working group within the IOC that will that will assess this regularly. They've updated that tranche guideline. I think it was in 2012 or 15, I think it was. It was due for another revision in 2019, which never happened. And it was at that point, by the way, that they mandated their federations to look at their own case-specific, context-specific policies. Mm -hmm. That was, I mentioned at the, at the start, one of the four or five things that were converging at the same time uh, that led us to say, all right, well, let's do that. Let's actually have this process to assess it. So I don't know what they'll do. They, they, may, they may stick, I mean, they could stick with the same policy. They could make subtle changes within it, mm. or they could completely move away from it and, and come up with a, I, I genuinely don't know. But mm. again, I just, I can't, I can't see how you balance these priorities. It's just at the mm. moment. The and and again, we're, we're open to evidence. Perhaps someone comes along and says that you can, Yeah. but they would have to first show how you can retain muscle mass. You can retain significant strength. You can retain the density of the bones and lose all the performance advantage. How? Yeah. It just... How do you how do you join yeah. those dots? It's just like it's impossible unless unless you have to join those dots because, and I think this is part of the problem is if your if your default position is we're going to include, 
then you can dismiss it. But if your default position is, can we balance them? Must we prioritize? Then you can't. Yeah. So, so for, uh, my final question before we kind of wrap up here is implementation. This is a this is a tricky one because how do you go about assessing somebody who might come into the sport at you know early twenties? You don't, mm. you're not going to go and ask them whether they are a transgender athlete or not, and you might not even know that. Yeah, is so there any way of policing it or checking it? That is that is a massive question. And it's a massive issue. It's the same issue that exists with the current policy for IOC and other sports where mm -hmm. the moment you mandate that a person who is transgender must lower their testosterone for 12 months requires that you identify them. And that's the crux of your question is how do you identify them in order to enact the yeah. guideline? Yeah. And so the World Rugby Guideline explains that. It's, it's more legal language than I'm comfortable like sitting here professing to understand fully. I'm much more comfortable on the biological. But in effect, what we've said is that the the, the, the first layer is that you ask the athlete to be honest, which is which is kind of like gloriously naive. Uh, it's the same thing doping does. It asks you to be honest and then it verifies. Trust but verify. Now, the verification thing is difficult because what you don't want is you don't want people pointing fingers and labeling and accusing, especially unfairly. Can you imagine the drama of, of accusing someone of being male when they're not? I mean, that's you don't want to go. Yeah, that's no, tough. But you have to allow for that to occur. So there is a there is a section in the guideline that discusses how this happens and it involves the, the chief medical officer of the union. Remember that this guideline only applies to international rugby. So we're talking international players where there is a chief medical officer, there is a medical process that exists and we're trying to plug into that machinery as it were to try and detect these. So the player would then raise that concern with the chief medical officer and then with absolute strictest confidentiality, which again, I understand, I'm not naive. World Athletics fell foul of this in its castus in any case. It was one of the big weaknesses of that policy is how mm. do you do this without stigma and la labeling and name calling and accusing and so on. So, but anyway, it's all, it's all outlined there. The chief medical officer would then launch or, or, or do an investigation in conjunction with World Rugby's chief medical officer and the player and then determine whether or not they were dealing with a trans case and whether that transition had happened before or after puberty. Because the, the nuance, which I probably should have brought up at the beginning, is if the transition happens before testosterone's androgenizing effects, because you can take puberty blockers now, and a lot of young children are doing this, that is in itself a whole nother debate, which oh. is like, that's not the science of sport. That's science <laughs> of, like, that's, I mean, there are now books. I was listening to a podcast. podcast the other day about where an author had written a book on this, you know, the the... The, the trend of younger and younger transitions. It tends to be in the opposite direction that it's girls to boys, so it's trans trans boys. Mm. Um, sure. Anyway, the, the, the point is that World Rugby then allows that because there is no theoretical advantage from testosterone. That may also yet be disproven because as we've already alluded to, you can gain strength without testosterone and some of the advantages boys have over girls, males have over females happen before testosterone's influence. So, yeah. so, so we're open to even that one. So anyway, it gets complicated, but if, if an athlete is identified or thought to be a trans woman who converted or transitioned after puberty and androgenizing effects, then the chief medical officer looks into that case. And I mean, let's, let's make it clear that these are guidelines and not necessarily rules. So some of the unions around the world have not necessarily adopted these guidelines and in fact have come out quite fervently and said, yeah. we're not going to adopt them. Yeah. Um, strangely. And, that, and that was another, I mean, the discussion on developing these guidelines was robust. I mean, we, we fought and argued and debated and actually had some strong disagreements before we, 
we all agreed on the direction, but we disagreed on issues like this. The option was, do you make this policy and say mm. this is the global standard? And the answer was no, because jurisdictions will differ and legal mm. requirements within those jurisdictions differ. Mm. And world rugby is much like the United Nations. It can't go as much as you might want it to go into the United States and, and fix the election process there next week, whatever. You can't, they can't do it. Mm. So world rugby has no jurisdiction over how the game is run at the community level within each of the member unions. And those member unions have got constitutional law issues themselves that might preclude them from adopting an exclusionary policy. Now, I'll have my own opinions on whether those constitutional law things are legit or fair or whatever, like, but that's besides the point. I, I don't, my opinion doesn't matter in that respect. All that matters is that we gave the unions the autonomy to decide whether or not to implement or not. And some of them have said they will, some of them have said they won't. Now, mm. again, I, I believe, I'm sitting here as the physiologist assessing the evidence, the biological principles, what I know of male and female, all the counter arguments like the research, the overlap. I mean, there's some that we might still just end up on, end off with. I, I would say that we've reached the right decision within World Rugby, but I understand that someone else's context might be different. It might change how they weight mm. inclusion, fairness and safety because the constitution forces them or compels them rather to prioritize inclusion more than more than else. And well, it's a living document, I guess, in many ways. Well, that's, that's, that's the key. Up. So we've already committed that we will constantly evaluate the evidence. Mm. Yeah. World Rugby funds research every year in five or six key areas, concussion, in brain injury, long-term health outcomes of rugby. Transgender research is now going to be added to that list. So it doesn't guarantee that people will be funded. But if we get a proposal that's of sufficiently high quality, mm. then we will fund and support that. And then there's a three-year commitment, sorry, there's a commitment to formally evaluate this every three years. So we'll, we'll bring the same people potentially or, or the same concepts back into the room and do this again in three years' time and say, well, what evidence do we have now? So it is a living document and we are committed to being open. I know that the default is to say, oh, you're transphobic, you had your minds made up, but that wasn't the case. I mean, World, world Rugby, the, the World Rugby Charter prioritizes, it says World Rugby is a game for all. It wants rugby to be a sport for all. So there's an, an inclusive line in there. Yeah, and that was yeah. the massive tension. That was the single biggest fight, that, not fight, I don't want to make it sound, that was the single biggest tension that existed was mm. we've committed to inclusion, but we start, we literally do this, we start every single executive board meeting, whatever, with player welfare is the number one priority. And the medical stuff, the, some of the stuff that I'm lucky enough to contribute to, our chief medical officer, we have a significant say in the laws of the game, the way the game is played. The, the, the rules of the game change annually for mm. safety reasons. You know, we've got a few people saying, oh, if World Rugby is so concerned about safety, why does it not make changes to the men's game? Well, we do. Where have you been? Yeah. I mean, we did a podcast last year on high tackle laws, ruck laws that have changed recently, uh, head injury assessments and policies around that to mm. try and protect. So this age, age banding, I mean, I've read to you already that countries and world rugby's got a policy that says that you can't play together. Under 20s can't play against adults in certain positions. 17 year olds can't play under 20 in certain positions. So the sport, everything they do is welfare driven. So that mm. tension between player welfare and inclusion mm. is massive. And the, the, in the end, the decision was, well, we're not, we're not banning trans women from playing the sport. We want to find ways to be inclusive of trans women in the sport. But we can't do that at the expense of the fairness and the safety elements, in river, in, not in that order, safety and then fairness elements. It just, it just isn't plausible and, yeah. and defensible for a sport to do that. And this is where we haven't even gone into the safety issues. You know, we, 
at that meeting, I know this is lengthy, but this this is the only trans podcast we'll do, so we might as well get it all out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. At that meeting, we're discussing all this, right? So now you've got your evidence. Now there's a debate, and it's robust, and it's good. This is what we wanted. And you've got one side saying that all these retained advantages, more muscle mass, more strength, more speed, more power. The other side, the side arguing for inclusion, literally said, so what? Mm. So what? Prove to me that the size, the speed, the power causes an increased injury risk. Okay. Uh Cool. Um, and I'm sitting there going, um, this seems unnecessary. Like, would you rather be tackled by a guy who has 110 or someone who has 80? Would you rather be tackled at six meters a second or two? It's, it seems kind of obvious to me. Why, why would you want to prove that these things, but okay, you've yeah, been asked a, for it. It's still a fair question. If there's enough evidence of people being injured by trans right. athletes, you know, yeah, so and there isn't really no because there are no. just so so few of them. So you're making yeah. this 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 decision for risk mitigation is based on like the precautionary principle where yeah. you you don't you don't lock your door on your house after the burglary. You lock it before, even if you've never been burgled. I mean, mm. I'm not going to go home tonight and leave my front door open, yeah. even if I've never been the victim of a house crime. Mm. Um, so so that's so there's a precautionary principle here that drives the decision and so we spoke about this and the lawyers were saying similar things is is it is it possible that you could try and quantify what this injury risk looks like when these physical mismatches occur and if there's if there's one regret i have it's that in the initial document i didn't explain well enough what we did next because what we did next was we said all right we can't do a study where we have guys who weigh 105 kilograms tackling people who weigh 70 kilograms yeah, and see like, what the impact is and see what the impact is and yeah. put sensors all over them and try and like do this because that by the way is the difference in mass between typical elite male and female players the male is 103 the female 73 kilograms sure the 99th percentile of women's elite players is lighter than the average male so the top one percent heaviest women's players are still less than average in the male sport mm. Which means that the lightest ten percent of women compared to the average male is a massive difference. It's mm. huge, yeah. and what what makes this even more concerning is that it's not just a mass thing because normally the heaviest player is also the slowest one. In the case of male versus female transition, the heaviest guy is also carrying a speed advantage. So you not only have someone who's thirty percent heavier, you have someone who's thirty forty percent stronger mm. and ten to fifteen percent faster. And that combination of A, B, and C, you know, the holy trinity of injury risk factors mm -hmm. is what's going to drive the risk. So what we basically did, or I did, because this was a scientific question that had to be explored, was I went to a biomechanist who'd previously done modeling of tackle injuries, head injuries specifically. And we said, all right, if I, if I give you the following scenarios, a tackler and a ball carrier, and the one weighs this and the other one weighs this, and this guy's traveling at this speed and the other direct opponent's traveling at this speed, can you work out a model for me of biomechanically what would happen to the head in a collision? And he said, yeah, we've got a model like that. Because there was, I mean, I'd seen it done before. Mm. The problem with the model is it's, it's like you've seen those videos where they test crash test dummies in car accidents. Yeah. That crash test dummy doesn't have muscles and a nervous system with which to brace for impact. They don't have muscle control and the ability to potentially shield themselves from that collision. So it's kind of like two passive objects hitting one another, two mm. cadavers, <laughs> crash yeah. test dummies. That's the model that we then applied. And we, we applied it to illustrate the concept. And the concept was that if you have a very large against a very small and a very fast against a very or, or slower in combination, what does the risk factor for head injury look like? 
So in other words, what happens to the acceleration of the head, the force on the head, the torque on the neck, the force on the neck? And what we showed in that model, because basically what he does is he runs simulations, thousands and thousands of simulations, was that the, the head acceleration, linear, angular, the neck force, the neck torque, was 20 to 30% higher for the typical versus typical crossover situation compared to typical, typical within women. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. And that was then offered in the guideline as a illustration, double underlined, bold red text, illustration of what these biological advantages do for injury risk factors. Unfortunately, it was picked up upon, again, by people who I really would have hoped for better from, as a valid model to say that the injury risk is 20 to 30% higher. And that wasn't what it was intended to do. There is no way to properly assess and quantify what that injury risk is until you literally do it in a lab. And that's mm -hmm. never going to happen. Yeah. So anyway, so we, we put that in the model and I think it was quite strong. I think it was quite a clever approach to try and do it. But because it was misinterpreted and I'll put my hand up and say, maybe I wasn't clear enough in the explanation that it was a, a passive model of a effectively crash test dummies without yeah. muscle control. You know what the biggest, the, the biggest irony of all is, irony of all is, is if you, if you did that with two humans, where one of them was actively applying a force to the other player, then the risk would be even higher. Because now in a tackle, it's not just me running into you like a cadaver, I'm actually gonna apply force at the moment of contact. Yeah. And I'm 30% stronger than you are. And you're 30% weaker, which means you're less capable of absorbing that yeah. force. So it amplifies the effect. So the effect's actually yeah. gonna be larger than what mm. we showed in the model. Yeah. But now I see this morning I can email some experts in Australia have dismissed it as a non-valid model. Well, yeah, but the way that it's non-valid actually makes it more conservative. If you if you take a situation of higher mass, higher speed, plus higher force application into a contact, it's going to be even larger. Yeah. So yeah. In, in actual fact, the fact that the model is passive actually does does the argument a favor for inclusion. Yeah. And it's so so that's an example of where I, I regret the way that that was positioned because it, it it tried to answer a question that was raised in good faith, mm. and it's been interpreted in in either out of ignorance or bad faith. So frustrating but that's how this goes so to wrap up i mean can people view the documents i mean are they available on a website somewhere where people can look at the the, the principles and the studies and that sort of thing that you guys did they can view everything yeah so where, when, do, where do you find when that? we had the when we had the meeting in february this year we had all our speakers commit to making their presentations available because we wanted it to be fully transparent. I'd seen I'd seen previous documents, not just on transgender, but in, in other domains also, where people arrive at a decision. The shoe, the shoe thing is a classic example of how World <laughs> Athletics told us that they put together an expert panel and this was the decision. Well, how did you get from A to Z? I mean, I want to see B through Y. Yes. Show me the letters. So we said, right, we'll show you the letters. So every speaker committed to having their presentations uploaded online. And so those were those were up there. There was a link. I'll send you the link. You can put it in the show notes. In the show notes, yeah. And then, yeah, the, the, the guideline was published on World Rugby's website. If you go to, I'll tell you what the address is here in a moment. Ross is quickly typing into his computer. While Ross is doing that, don't forget uh, a big thank you to our Patreon members who, who are getting to listen to this podcast uh, a little bit ahead of the rest of our podcast listeners. So it's going to go into Patreon first and a little bit of a thank you to them. But uh, Ross, have you found the link? Yeah, so if you go to playerwelfare.worldrugby.org forward slash gender. 
playerwelfare.worldrugby.org forward slash gender, you'll find five different documents. One of them is the is the DSD document, which still exists, hasn't been replaced, as we've said. And then there is a mixed gender rugby guideline, which we've also alluded to. And then there are three, um, three, three documents that are relevant to this. There's the guideline, and then we wrote a frequently asked questions, which addresses many of the frequent, and this podcast has probably covered 70, 80% of those. Mm. And then there's a, there's a small visualization infographic that summarizes the research and how we got to that position. So we were really committed to being open and transparent about it. And I mean, we've, that was a serious commitment and I think we've delivered on it. So yeah. yeah. Yeah, and then other than that, I mean, there's a couple of other things that people throw our way. I don't know how we're going for time, but... Um, throw, throw, so, throw it my way. So, the, so the, 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 the final point I just want to make is that people will argue that there's a crossover between men and women. This, this sort of goes back to the case-by-case case argument. Right. In other words, some trans women are smaller, lighter, slower, weaker, and less muscular than the females they'll play against. Yeah. In the same way that there are many male marathon runners who are slower than Bridget Koskai. In fact, 95%, if not more, yes. of male runners are slower than Bridget Koskai. That's just the reality of sport. Yeah. And, and the, the overlap argument is then offered as a way to argue for inclusion, as if there's no advantage for those people. But those comparisons are irrelevant because the comparison between Bridget Koskai and me in a marathon is absolutely irrelevant. The comparison should be between Bridget Koska and Eliud Kipchoge because Correct. they are at the same match level. Correct. In the same way, the comparison between uh, Anna van Abrechen and you and I on a bike is absolutely irrelevant. We know she's better than we are. <laughs> like that's the whole point that we're celebrating her performances for. She's better than all the female athletes as well. But we don't want to compare her to Julian Alaphilippe and Roglic and Pogacar and these guys because then the comparison looks completely different. Definitely, so yeah. the truth is if we, if we took a simple metric like height and we lined the whole population of your city, wherever in the world you are, London, Paris, New York, Boulder, Cape Town, if we lined them up from tallest to shortest, we would get men from tallest down to about the first 10%. Because even the, the 10th, even the 90th percent of males is taller than the tallest woman. But maybe at some point between 80 and 90 percent of that list, we'd start to see the first woman, another few hundred would go, there's the next woman and so on. And by the time we got to the other end of the spectrum, we would see basically exclusively women. This makes sense. The point is that there's a normal distribution with overlap. If you cherry pick your comparison such that you compare a very good or a very tall woman to a typical or mediocre or relatively short man, then you can make the case that women are taller than men. Yeah. And you'd be wrong. Because the fact is that you should be comparing this percentile X to X percentile in the other category. That's the only valid one. Now, apply the same thing to sport. It doesn't matter that Paula Radcliffe is near the far left of that list and I'm near the far right. The only thing that matters is who's competing in that band. Yeah. And when you understand that, then you understand why this thing should apply at school and community level as well. Because sport is a zero-sum game when it comes to competitive sport, not, not your local park run. I could show up at my local park run full of drugs, EPO, testosterone. I could show up at my local park run in roller skates and win the thing in 14 minutes. It wouldn't make a difference to anyone else. It's not a zero-sum game. Yeah. But if I showed up at my national qualifying trials for the Olympic Games and did that, then it's a problem. Yeah. And that's where people lose sight when they cherry pick to say, let's compare some woman to this man or this group of men. Oh, look, she's better than they are. So it's the same thing. You, you can't take a biological male who's at the 60th percentile 
and compare them to a biological female at the 90th percentile or even at the the, the 10th percentile or whatever mm. it is and say, oh, look, he's not stronger. Mm. The female's got the advantage, therefore include. It's just, yeah. it's just a flawed premise. So again, if you're trying to think about this, you must start, in my opinion, from first principles and then work through it. And if you do that, the guideline, and, and the guideline is set out in this way, by the way, and so is the frequently asked question. So if anything wasn't answered in this podcast, have a read. I mean, the FAQ is written for the lay person. Yeah. It's not an academic document. Yeah, I read it. It's and excellent. if anyone wants to ask any other questions, then find us on Twitter and let's discuss. Because yeah. yeah. we're not shutting down any part of this conversation. It's highly emotional. It's also highly evidence-based. And it's it's fine to have these conversations. But just... It's, it's not transphobic, it's not bigoted, it's genuine and seeking to look after all its constituents, not just a portion of them. I think we'll leave it at that. A uh, big thank you again to our Patreon and to our uh, uh, listeners uh, that have uh, been engaging with us on Twitter over the last couple of weeks. Uh, many podcasts that we've put out over the last couple of years, and we still get lots of feedback from those. And don't forget, you can uh, give us feedback on this podcast. Let us know what you think. Uh, if you have an alternative view, as I say, as Ross has just said, uh, always keen to hear opposing views, even if we don't necessarily agree with them. But uh, from us, for now, it's goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Science of Sport podcast. Follow us on Twitter at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.